Have you ever come home from a long day just to find out that that meat you needed for your recipe has totally slipped your mind the last time you went to the grocery store? Well, with the help of ButcherBox, you might never have to deal with that problem ever again. With ButcherBox, you get the convenience of having high-quality meat and seafood delivered straight to your door. Not to mention the peace of mind you get to feel knowing that it's 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free. All humanely raised with no antibiotics or added hormones. Let ButcherBox help make your life even easier. No grocery store required. In addition to free shipping on every order, you get to curate your box plans, have access to member-exclusive deals, get recipe ideas and inspiration, as well as helpful tips. You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com morningcup and use the code morningcup at checkout and enjoy your choice of bone-in chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year. Plus, get $20 off. Again, that's butcherbox.com slash morningcup and use the code morningcup. Question. If I were to ask you right this second to write down all of the subscriptions you pay for each month, would you be able to do it without missing one? It's more difficult than it sounds, especially with so many options and those sneaky free trials that you sometimes forget to cancel. What if I told you I had the perfect solution to help you with this exact problem? Why don't you try Rocket Money? With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to see each and every single subscription I pay for, even the ones I totally forgot I had. I'm sure you've been there too, but Rocket Money can help cancel it with just a few taps. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens, so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your finances and with the help of Rocket Money's easy-to-use dashboard, compare your monthly spending and make saving money easier than ever. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morningcup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morningcup. Rocketmoney.com slash morningcup. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... In the early 1800s, there were three central roads leaving London, one of which gained a bad reputation because of its seedy businesses, dark alleys, and rundown houses. When crime happened on Ratcliffe Highway, no one bat an eye. And on December 7th, 1811, a man took full advantage of this less-than-desirable location to commit two vicious attacks later referred to as the Ratcliffe Highway Murders. So, if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. The Marr family owned a linen draper's business on Ratcliffe Highway and took up residence in the same building. 
On December 7, 1811, while preparing for the next day's business, Timothy Marr sent his young servant girl into town to purchase some oysters. As she walked out of the door, she noticed a figure standing inside of the shop, shrouded in darkness. She assumed this man was simply a late-night customer and continued on her way. She walked to the oyster shop, which she found to be closed, and headed back to the Marr home. Through the window, she could see her employer still working and decided to head to the baker to pay a bill. In total, she was away from the home for about 20 minutes. When she returned, not only was all of the light extinguished, but the front door was locked. She thought it was strange and knocked, thinking that they had just forgotten that she had gone out. She knocked and could hear footsteps and the baby inside crying out, but no one came to get her. She knocked again and again, and with each knock, she grew more and more panicked. All of the noise began drawing the attention of people nearby, and the next-door neighbor, John Murray, was roused from his sleep. Margaret explained her concerns, and John grew equally as concerned. He vaulted over the fence that divided the two lawns and saw the back door was open and a small light was still on. He called inside with no response before deciding to enter the home. Inside, he found a shocking sight. The entire family, which included 24-year-old Timothy Marr, his wife Celia, and 14-week-old son Timothy, and an apprentice named James Gowan, all perished at the hands of an unknown intruder. All had been battered to death in a way that left them almost completely unrecognizable, and the home splattered with blood and brain matter. Baby Timothy, who still lie in his bed, had one side of his face crushed and his throat slit so deeply it almost severed his head. To say that the discovery of the Marr family was shocking would be a drastic understatement. As of 1811, Britain had no formal police force, but instead were governed by a group of parish constables, magistrates, and coroners who laid down the law and dealt with all local crime. The first officer on the scene, a man named Charles Horton, immediately began scouring the house for any clues. He found the murder weapon, a long-handled iron mallet covered in blood and human hair, propped up against a chair in the master bedroom, two sets of footprints seemingly belonging to two killers, and drawers still containing their money and valuables, meaning the crime was either interrupted or was not driven by financial gain. Later, the bodies of all those who died in the Mar home would be laid in their beds while the public were allowed to walk through the scene and a reward of 500 guineas was offered for the apprehension of the perpetrator. People showed up in droves to gawk at the dead bodies. Citizens took it upon themselves to follow the tracks and came across a man who claimed he heard a number of people in an unoccupied home next to him, leading many to theorize that a gang may have been responsible for the murders. When Charles Horton returned to the police office, murder weapon in hand, he found that three men were already in custody. These men were sailors who had been seen in the area that night and appeared to have blood splatter on their clothing. Unfortunately, all three had convincing alibis and were later released. This would happen a number of other times with a number of other suspects, including Timothy's own brother, who was questioned for 48 hours before he was cleared. None of these leads worked out. Basically, there was very little chain of command, an unprotected crime scene, a public on edge with fear, and a reward making everyone desperate to solve the crime. It was, to say the least, a mess. Twelve days later, and with the city still up in arms, a second attack happened, this time at the King's Arms Tavern. On December 19th, John Williamson, the 56-year-old owner of the tavern, 
told one of the parish constables about a suspicious man wearing a brown jacket. He said he saw the man sneaking around the place, even pressing his ear to the door to listen, and asked if they could keep an eye out and arrest the man if they saw him. That same night, the constable called out that there had been a murder at the tavern. As the crowd began to gather, a half-naked man began to descend from the window using some knotted sheets. It was John Turner, a man who had been boarding in the tavern for about eight months, and between his incoherent cries, he was able to tell the horrible crime that he had just witnessed. When the doors were finally broken open, they found the bodies of John Williamson and his wife Elizabeth and their servant, Bridget Harrington. The trio, like those in the first murder, had been violently beaten to death, but had the addition of a sliced throat. The murder weapon, which still lie next to Mr. Williamson, was an iron crowbar. The only people to survive were John Turner and the couple's 14-year-old granddaughter, Catherine, who slept through the whole incident and was never discovered by the attacker. The bodies at the tavern, like those at the first murder, were laid out in their beds for passerbys to come look at. The London Bridge was sealed off and several officers were sent out to hunt down the culprit. The killer had left a number of muddy footprints, and as onlookers pointed out, the footprints seemed to go through the same escape route used in the Marr family murders. There was little doubt that this was the same killer, though a motive and connection were never determined. Desperate to find the culprit, a man came forward claiming he had a strong suspicion that his roommate was the killer. And with that, Irish sailor John Williams was arrested based solely on circumstantial evidence. According to his roommate, John returned to his room after midnight on the night of both Ratcliffe Highway murders, had been an acquaintance of Timothy Mars, and was a patron of the King's Arms Tavern. Other than some pawn tickets and a past failed mutiny, John was considered a well-liked, well-educated sailor who kept himself and never really got into any trouble. If it wasn't for his roommate's statement, John would have never been considered a suspect. He, of course, denied the allegations and admitted that, though he was at the tavern the night of the murder, he left before the attack. He even had a handful of people who could account for his whereabouts, but no one was contacted. He was remanded to Cold Bath Fields Prison, where another suspect was confined and would remain in prison. But they weren't done. A third man was arrested and placed in prison as those in authority attempted to build a case around the three men. According to some sources, John Williams had once served on the same ship as Timothy Marr and held a grudge against the man. Though this loosely explained the Marr's murders, they still had no clue why he would have murdered the Williamsons. In fact, when police asked John Turner if he recognized John Williams, he said he did, but not as the man who he saw standing over the body of the Williamsons, but as a regular patron at the tavern. The case against John Williams never went to trial. He took his own life while waiting in prison on December 28, 1811. No one found his body until they came to collect him for his hearing. His body was then dragged through the streets before being thrown into a hole, had a stake plunged through his heart, and buried at the junction of Commercial Road and Cannon Street Road. While many took his suicide as proof of his guilt, others believe he was an easy scapegoat for the real perpetrator. In fact, the cases against the other two men in prison quickly fell apart and both were released. Modern sources say that John Williams would never have been prosecuted, let alone convicted, using the circumstantial evidence they had collected against him. The case and all of its gruesome details spread through the newspapers nationwide, 
and is considered one of the first national shock stories to circulate through Britain. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on December 8th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.